Good afternoon. For those of you just joining us this afternoon, my name is Allison McKee. I am the immediate past president of the Virginia Bar Association. Welcome to the VBA's 131st annual meeting, which as you know, we typically have in Williamsburg, but for uh, in light of the pandemic circumstances, we are having a completely virtual meeting today. So thank you for being with us this afternoon. I'd like to introduce this afternoon's Belial's Legacy presentation series on the Constitution of Virginia at 50, looking back and looking ahead, an in-depth analysis of the Commonwealth's governing document. This program is being chaired by the Committee on Special Issues of National and State Importance, which is chaired by David Landon of the Landon Law Group in Richmond. Unfortunately, David could not be with us here this afternoon, but I really want him to know how much we appreciate his hard work with the committee and indeed the work of the entire committee in bringing us quality programs time and time again. So thank all to, to all of you, especially to David um, for your hard work. This program is being sponsored by the Landed Law Group, PLLC, Charleston Bredehoff, Cohen and Brown PC and Dominion Energy. Thank you sponsors for sponsoring this very important and exciting program. I'd now like to introduce our panelists, beginning with my own con law professor from back in the early 80s at UVA Law School, A.E. Dick Howard. Professor Howard is the Warner Booker Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. He served as Executive Director to the Commission on Constitutional Revision, was counsel to the General Assembly when it reviewed the Commission's recommendations and directed the successful referendum campaign for the Constitution's ratification. Our panelists are Rebecca Green. Rebecca teaches election law, legislative redistricting, and GIS, ADR, and privacy law. She co-directs the election law program, a joint project of William & Mary Law School and the National Center for State Courts a project that seeks to provide resources for judges deciding election cases. Our next panelist is Juliet Clark. Juliet Busing Clark is a student at the University of Virginia expecting a gra to graduate in May with a JD and Master of Public Policy. After graduation, she will clerk for the Honorable Leonie M. Brinkema in the Eastern District of Virginia for one year before joining McGuire Woods LLP in Richmond. Her note, from massive resistance to quiet evasion, the struggle for educational equity and integration in Virginia is slated for publication in the Virginia Law Review next fall. Juliet holds a Bachelor of Arts from Yale and a Master of Education from the University of Massachusetts in Boston, where she taught English at a Title I public high school for five years prior to law school. And our third panelist is Sai Prakash. Professor Prakash is the James Monroe Professor of Law. His scholarship focuses on separation of powers, particularly executive powers. Professor Prakash's most recent book, The Living Presidency, an originalist argument against its ever-expanding powers, was published by Harvard Belknap Press in 2020. He also authored Imperial from the Beginning, the Constitution of the Original Executive, Yale University Press 2015. 
The former book focuses on the modern pre presidency, while the latter considers the presidency of the founders. Professor Prakash is a graduate of the Yale Law School and clerk for Judge Lawrence H. Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and for Justice Clarence Thomas of the U.S. Supreme Court. He was in private practice for two years before joining the Legal Academy. Now, Professor Howard will entertain questions um, through the Q&A box. Uh, he will handle those questions at the end of the program. So I'd like to, before we turn it over to Professor Howard, Crystal, if you would, could you uh, share with our participants how they might be able to submit questions to the panel and also any how they may address any technical difficulties they may experience? Sure, no problem. Um, so welcome to all of our attendees. You can download today's presentation materials by clicking the blue hyperlink that's in the chat box. If you have any audio issues and you need to call in using your phone, I put the phone number, meeting ID, and password there as well for you to use. If you have any technical problems, feel free to leave a chat and I'll get back to you. If you would like to ask a question, use the Q&A box uh, because you will unfortunately not have access to your audio or video, but we'll do question and answer at the end of the presentation. Enjoy. Thanks very much, Crystal. Professor Howard, we are delighted to have you with us this afternoon, and I will turn it over to you right now. Thank you, Allison. I uh, love having a former student introduce me because I assume enough time has passed that you've forgotten all the slights of the classroom or cold calling or the, or the like, and now are in a warm-hearted mood towards your former professor. So thank you for that gracious introduction for all of us, and my thanks in advance to all three of the panelists. We have a first class, a star-studded uh, lineup today, three really good people. So you, you have a lot to expect this afternoon. And the task that's been assigned to me as the legacy luncheon speaker, uh, even though we're virtually at lunch, I realize we're not physically together as we would like to be, but uh, my, my job is to sort of set the stage as it were, and give you a sense of how we came to where we are so that we can then plunge with the panel into some of the current issues. Um, Start, if you will, with thinking about the Declaration of Rights that George Mason and his colleagues wrote in May of 1776, which became what is today the Bill of Rights of the Virginia Constitution. That Bill of Rights, that 1776 document, highlights the idea of community. It says that government is instituted for the common benefit, the protection and security of the people, nation, or community. But when the Declaration of Rights of that period turns to the question of who in that community gets to vote. I mean, the, who, who are the electors? Who, who gets the franchise? The language is much more qualified. It says that men must have, and I quote, sufficient evidence of permanent common interest with or attachment to the community. Well, in George Mason's time, of course, that meant property owners. If you didn't own property, you didn't vote. But the language of permanent common interest and attachment is sufficiently open-ended that over the years since 1776, later generations have been able to debate and enlarge the franchise from the fairly limited number who were able to vote in the, uh, in the, uh, in the beginning. Uh, petition after petition was filed after 1776 trying to move away from simply property owners. And we've had in Virginia a series of 
conventions. Uh, the federal constitution, of course, was drafted by the only convention we've ever seen at the national level, but we've had, depending on how you count them, something like six constitutions in Virginia, uh, and they have resulted from various conventions. The first one after the revolution was 1829 and 30, uh, a remarkable collection of some of Virginia's leading voices, including John Marshall himself, who was there as a delegate. That convention achieved only modest reforms, enlarging the franchise and the like. The next convention, 1850-51, actually brought us to the point of having essentially universal white manhood suffrage. That was the mid-19th century. Well, of course, Civil War and Reconstruction brought yet more change. Uh, as a price of readmission to the Union, the former Confederate states had to do two things. First, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment, and secondly, they had to write a progressive constitution. Well, in Richmond, that was the convention of 1867-68. They produced uh, what became the 1870 Constitution, and that, in line with the 13th Amendment, the end of slavery, the enfranchisement of African Americans, uh, black Virginians were brought to the ballot for the, for the first time. So the story throughout the 19th century was one of progressive enlargement of who was entitled to be part of the political community. Well, that progressive trend came to a screeching halt in 1902. There was a convention in 1901-1902. Uh, this is a post-Reconstruction convention. The last federal troops had left the South in 1877, and the Southern states, in, in years after that, set out to, to discard their, their progressive Reconstruction constitutions and, and have something much more regressive. Um, one of the delegates at the 1901-1902 convention denounced the 1870 Constitution as, I quote, the blackest page in the history of this state. And it was clear what the delegates in 1901-1902 were setting out to do, uh, and they were to achieve white supremacy. As one delegate put it, he said, I want it distinctly understood that I am here as a white man, and I propose to represent white interests. And that is precisely what that convention uh, did. One of the other delegates was very equally explicit. He said, white supremacy is what I'm setting out to achieve. And he said that it's the Anglo-Saxons who claim the right of government, a sense of inherent superiority over peoples of other races. Well, the 1870 Constitution had, had enfranchised blacks, and the delegates in 1902 were uh, determined to reverse that, to eliminate uh, blacks as much as they could from state politics. Uh, indeed, there were some delegates at the 1901-1902 convention who deplored giving the franchise to lower classes of people, including whites, not limited to blacks. Uh, one delegate said he wasn't going to see hordes of ignorant and worthless men marching to the polls and one of his colleagues said it's the respectable people in the community who ought to rule. He said, I'm not going to turn my people over to a rabble. Um, so in this atmosphere, what, what place did, you, did these delegates think that blacks had in Virginia? Well, they belonged on the land. Uh, the only place they thought blacks could be useful was, was as agricultural laborers. As one delegate said, the, the place they belong is the cornfield and the tobacco ground as agricultural laborers. 
Uh, indeed, there were some delegates who looked back with nostalgia on the benign, what they thought were the benign effects of slavery. Um, one of them said, one of the delegates said that when the restraining hand of the master is taken away from the slave, then the intimate association between slave and master was, was gone. This was the what later became the sort of moonlight and magnolia sort of lost cause view of the period of slavery. The delegates in Richmond in 1901-1902 brought history and theology into play in defending their view of white supremacy. Um, one delegate said, ever since the dawn of history, uh, we have seen the black man in a position of inferiority. Uh, other delegates pointed out it was God's plan for the universe. He said, from the very beginning, God had ordained that there'd be a hierarchy of races and the white race would be superior. Um, it's clear to these delegates that education was wasted on, on blacks. Uh, they seemed to think that black men were incapable of cultivation or useful knowledge, as one put it. And one of the delegates said, uh, what will you teach these black children to read and for every one who reads the Bible? There will be 10 who will read Jesse James or Billy the Kid or, God forbid, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And of course, higher education was even more inconceivable. One of the delegates said, what, what is a black man to do with higher education? Is he going to practice law? Is he going to practice medicine? It was simply beyond belief to the delegates in Richmond that, that year that blacks would be able to take advantage of that kind of education. Well, of course, the delegates were there not only to make speeches, but they were there to write a constitution. Um, Reconstruction, I said, it had, had, had come to an end. And they had, they had models at hand because Mississippi in 1890 had led the way. It had a constitution. Other southern states had written new post-Reconstruction constitutions. And they used a number of devices to disenfranchise blacks. So poll tax, uh, literacy tests understanding clauses, grandfather clauses, all sorts of things. Well, what was the Supreme Court doing all this time? And were they going to stand by and see the southern states undo the, the progress that had been achieved in the Reconstruction period? Surely the Supreme Court wouldn't do that. Well, I have to say they did, because it was a test case out of Mississippi, Williams versus Mississippi, decided in 1898. Was a challenge to that Mississippi 1890 Constitution, and the Supreme Court said, well, it's neutral on its face, and they were not willing to worry about whether it would be administered in a way that was discriminatory or not. So, the, in effect, the Supreme Court had given a, a, a green light to the delegates in Richmond. They, they knew what they would be able to do, and as one delegate said, we proposed to eliminate every Negro of whom we could be rid without running counter to the federal constitution. Um, well, they, 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 they set out to make it Im virtually impossible for, for black Virginians to register. Um, those people who had been in the Confederate Army or their sons would automatically be registered. Uh, property owners were automatically registered. But anybody else, which would include most black Virginians, uh, had to go to the registrar and go through the following tests. The registrar could open the Virginia Constitution to any section and ask the would-be registrant to interpret that section of the Virginia Constitution. Well, uh, there's sections of the Virginia Constitution I can't interpret. I mean, and it was clear that any 
black registrant was going to confront a white registrar who was not going to be satisfied with that person's interpretation of whatever section he'd been asked to read. Uh, and the one of the delegates said these requirements will simply be too great for the Negroes. And of course, if you were a black laborer, you're not going to give up a day's pay. You can go to register and do something which you know you're going to be turned away. And so the result was uh, the Grim Reaper had gone through the, the, the uh, ranks of black Virginians, in effect. Back in 1867, um, almost half the voters in Virginia had been black, about 100,000 voters. After 1902, there were 21,000, which is to say less than 5% of all registered voters. Uh, and indeed, a lot of poor whites were kept from the polls as well. So when you think about George Mason's language of community and the question of who belongs to the political community, what you're really asking is a, a, a question of who belongs and who doesn't. I mean, who counts and who does not in this political community? And the 1902 Constitution made that clear not only in the voting of franchise provisions, but also by such things as making it clear that public schools were to be segregated. That had not been in the Constitution before, but now it was. So we had we embarked on the era, the first half of the 20th century, some of you will remember that era, um, the age of the bird machine. A genteel machine, to be sure, it didn't necessarily had to crack skulls, but uh, everybody knew who was in control, and the small electorate were largely the top of the bird machine. And that, that, that carried us right into the mid-century after World War II, and into the 1960s, when change was in the air. I mean, we know we were there, or we read about the 1960s, and what a decade of turmoil it was, assassinations of uh, John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, an era of, of riots and arson in the cities, I mean, anti-Vietnam protests and, and the like. It was also a change of a, a decade of constitutional change and I would say progress. Uh, one person, one vote. The Supreme Court had decreed that for state and federal elections. Congress had passed the um, Voting Rights Act of 1965, which of course applied to Virginia. Um, the Supreme Court has struck down the poll tax, so a num number of changes came about. And it was about that point that Governor Mills Godwin appointed a Commission on Constitutional Revision. It was a remarkable, remarkably talented group of people. Its members included uh, Lewis Powell, who later sat on the U.S. Supreme Court, Hardy Dillard, later on the World Court of The Hague, uh, Colgate Darden, a former governor of Virginia, former UVA president, um, Oliver Hill, who was the leading civil rights attorney in Virginia. He was the third-grade marshal of Virginia in those days. So it was a remarkable group of people who set to work and drafted what is now the Constitution of Virginia. The, the, revi the revisors passed their recommendations along to um, the General Assembly, who then made further changes. The proposed Constitution went to the ballot in November of 1970, and after a, a fairly brisk referendum campaign, uh, the Constitution was approved uh, by 72% of the voters, which I would say in, if you were running for office, that would be something of a landslide. So that brought about the Constitution we have. And quickly to sum up with two or three of the main achievements, 
riffing off my idea of the political community and who belongs and who doesn't, the new constitution has for the first time an anti-discrimination clause. Forbids governmental discrimination but based on race or color, national origin or sex. The education article is, uh, Juliet will be talking about that in a few minutes. The constitution mandates a statewide system of public education for every child of school age. Of course, that was a way of repudiating the legacy of massive resistance and closed schools in places like Prince Edward County. Um, indeed, the Constitution places an enforceable duty on the localities. Once the General Assembly comes up with uh, a funding formula, the counties and cities have to provide their share, and they can be mandamus by the Attorney General. I think the revisors understood the direct link between education and civic virtue because they placed education in the Bill of Rights, drawing on uh, language from Thomas Jefferson's Bill for the More General Diffusion of Knowledge. Uh, education now takes its place along more traditional rights, such as um, free exercise of religion or expression. Um, the Board of Education has primacy in, in fashioning standards of quality. Again, Juliet will be talking about that. So I think a fair distance was traveled from the Constitution of 1902 to the one that's presently in, in place. Um, there are, of course, the time has passed. Uh, no document is ever uh, unchangeable. Um, Thomas Jefferson famously said that each generation should look at the Constitution and see whether it serves the purposes of, the, of, of our time and not, not yesterday. So there are questions which no doubt we could put on the table to think about. Um, Rebecca will be telling us about voting and reapportionment. The um, voters of Virginia have approved, a, as you know, a, an amendment to the Constitution that provides for the creation of a bipartisan commission to draw district uh, legislative lines. Uh, we shall see how that works out, whether it is up to the task of, of dealing with partisan gerrymandering and the like. Um, restoring the voting rights of felons is an issue I would put on the table because the Supreme Court of Virginia has been fairly uh, strict in, in, in dealing with the governor's power. And Virginia, unfortunately, is one of the strictest states in the country. Uh, and uh, it is possible to restore voting rights, but it's not an easy process. Uh, Dillon's rule is a, an issue we might think about. Uh, the Commission on Constitutional Revision had proposed um, reversing Dillon's rule. The General Assembly chose not to do that. So Dillon's rule is still in place. And we certainly ought to be asking the question, is it time to loosen the constitutional restrictions on local government? So here we are. This year is the 50th anniversary, uh, July the 1st of 2021. It will be exactly 50 years from the date on which the present Constitution came into being. And I think it invites us to think about to reverse once again to George Mason's Declaration of Rights. Um, one of the aphorisms in that uh, durable document is that uh, it reminds us that, and I'm quoting it, no free government nor the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. Frequent recurrence to fundamental, fundamental principles I think that's a very enduring uh, dictum for us. Uh, we, we live in an age, we follow the news, we know what's going on here and abroad. It's an age in which liberal 
constitutional democracy seems to be under siege in so many countries. I think of Hungary and Poland, for example, in a number of countries, and in which at times we've seen it being buffeted here in our own country as well. So if you think about a state constitution as being a place where the people of that state, here the Commonwealth of Virginia, will write their own hopes and aspirations, I think we could use this anniversary to ask the question whether we can use the Constitution of Virginia to nurture uh, self-government by free people in a way which is both just and inclusive. That's the that's sort of homework I would place on the table for my former students and my other friends at the Virginia Bar and beyond. So with that point of departure, let's turn to the members of the panel. Uh, they've been introduced, so I don't have to give you their biographical sketches. We will hear from them in the order first from Rebecca Green on voting rights and and partisan gerrymandering. We'll hear from Juliet Clark on education, and finally from Cy on uh, executive power in Virginia. So, uh, Rebecca, may I turn it over to you? Yes, uh, you may. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Professor Howard, and to the Virginia Bar Association for inviting me to participate. I had the honor of being on a commission to amend Virginia's constitution to change how we draw district lines with Professor Howard a few years ago. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity I had to get to know him um, and, and I have tremendous respect for him. So it's an honor to be here. Um, when Professor Howard reached out last April uh, to invite me to, to join this panel, I remember thinking it seemed like a long way off. And um, I guess I couldn't have known what a long way off it actually was um, given what we've been through with this election um, in, in the intervening months. Um, but in the conversation today about Virginia's constitution, as Professor Howard said, I, I am gonna be um, talking about two um, election related provisions. The first has to do with who Virginia welcomes into its political polity. Um, through mounting pressure on our constitution's permanent disenfranchisement of people with felony conviction histories. Uh, and the second is a dramatic change uh, to how Virginians draw state legislative and congressional districts. Um, calls for reforms in these areas come from, on the one hand, recognition of Virginia's long and troubled history of suppressing minority voters and the recognition that Virginia is an outlier uh, in its permanent disenfranchisement of people with felony conviction histories. And for the other, from a common sense understanding that self-interested legislators drawing their own districts in a back room undermines potentially the interests of voters. So I'll just spend a few minutes talking about each with particular reference to how we got here and what lies ahead. So starting with voting rights uh, of people with felony conviction histories. Uh, both the permanent exclusion and the governor's power to restore civil rights is contained within executive clemency powers in Article 5, Section 12 of the Virginia Constitution. The last three governors have been aggressive in restoring voting rights, starting with Governor McConnell uh, and going into hyperspeed with Governor McAuliffe and continuing apace um, in Governor Northam's administration. Uh, over the years, we've seen several attempts to challenge Virginia's constitutional disenfranchisement provisions directly in court, but none have been successful. Challenging felony disenfranchisement provisions in state constitutions is generally an uphill battle since the practice is recognized and therefore legitimated by explicit text in the 14th Amendment of the federal constitution. 
But in one case called Hunter versus Underwood, the US Supreme Court did find that although Alabama's voter disenfranchisement provision was facially neutral, the original enactment was motivated by a desire to discriminate against black Alabamans on account of race. Uh, generally, the Supreme Court is reluctant to base a determination of discriminatory intent on legislative history, but the Supreme Court overcame its, unusual, its usual reluctance to do so in Hunter because of an overwhelming amount of evidence that the Alabama Constitutional Convention was specifically aimed at disenfranchising African-Americans. Um, as the 11th Circuit below characterized it, when the Alabama Constitutional Convention assembled in May of 1901, the question was not whether to disenfranchise African-Americans, but rather how best to do so through constitutional means. As Professor Howard described, uh, Virginia's history, like Alabama's and Hunter, uh, is undeniably awash in racism. Uh, but unlike in Hunter, this racism can't be directly linked for legal purposes to the felon disenfranchisement law in Virginia's state constitution. Uh, like Alabama's, as Professor Howard described, the 1901 convention was fraught with appalling and unabashed racism among the many examples, just to add to the ones he provided, uh, Delegate Walter Watson noted on record that the great underlying principle, this is a quote, of this convention moment uh, the one object and cause which assembled this body was the elimination of the Negro from the politics of this state. Still, the felon disenfranchisement provision itself was not the result of disenfranchisement efforts in uh, 1901. In fact, it was apparently never discussed. This is because the Virginia legislature passed the original Felony Voting Act in 1830 at a time when Virginia denied African Americans suffrage outright. Uh, and so this history undermines a Hunter versus Underwood style attack against the provision. And whatever arguments might have been marshaled against the 1901 constitution have even less purchase due to the intervening 1971 constitution in which of course racism was uh, not at all the goal. So this brief foray into the history of the provision suggests that Northam is right, that the only way to do away with this provision is through constitutional amendment. And it remains to be seen whether the will is there, uh, but it is worth noting that doing so would bring Virginia's voting laws in line with the vast majority of other states uh, on this issue. I grew up in Vermont, which is one of two states which, which allows people to vote in prison. Uh, the vast majority of other states automatically restore rights upon completion of sentence. I thought I would quickly mention my work on this issue with students at William & Mary Law School through a project called Revive My Vote. We started it back in 2013 to help eligible Virginians regain the right to vote, uh, starting with the McConnell administration and even more so today. Um, it's pretty easy today to restore uh, one's voting rights. The governor is actively looking for people who are eligible and anxious to help them um, regain the right to vote. That said, Revive My Vote works with a frustratingly large number of applicants who are consistently denied restoration. This is usually due to administrative hurdles um, when the rights restoration office can't locate required documentation. Sometimes this is because the crime occurred out of state. Sometimes it's a federal court and federal courts sometimes refuse to share records citing privacy concerns, which is strange. Um, sometimes it's because the offense occurred in the distant past. Uh, in one instance, the needed court record was about a crime that occurred in the 1970s um, but the courthouse had subsequently burned down and all of the records had been destroyed. 
Another extraordinary problem is the inability of the governor to locate eligible Virginians, whether it's because of nuptial name changes, frequent moves or otherwise, when the governor's office confirms sentences have been completed and sends out grant orders, many are returned to sender, uh, preventing those Virginians from ever getting word that their rights have been restored. Because of the efforts of the last three gubernatorial administrations, the numbers of Virginians disenfranchised because of Article 12 are smaller than they would otherwise be. But I think it's worth noting that it doesn't have to be this way and that we don't have to live in a state in which administrative burden prevents otherwise eligible Virginians from having their say at the ballot box. I won't say uh, quite as much about the redistricting amendment except to highlight a few of its features um, that we've already seen in play. Um, by way of background, Virginia recently amended Article 2, Section 6 of its constitution to change the way that Virginia draws its legislative lines. Under the new system, a group of eight sitting legislators and eight citizens will draw the lines as states must do following each decennial census. Uh, the amendment requires uh, a panel of retired judges who have already um, actually done, done this. They've selected uh, the citizen members of Virginia's new commission and the commissioner uh, has already met. In fact, they met for the first time last night, um, which I watched right here from my kitchen table. Um, the first meeting was organizational. They selected co-chairs and discussed scheduling and timetable questions. Um, and they also talked about how to educate committee members about the legal intricacies of the redistricting process. Um, but I just wanted to stress two features of the constitution um, and the, the provisions in the constitution and, and what's about to unfold. Um, and that, that has to do with both transparency and citizen participation. So more than just having citizen members on the commission, um, I think it's important to stress that all Virginians will be able to take part. We saw glimmers of this in the last round. Christopher Newport University hosted a redistricting competition that a group of students at William & Mary and other schools around the state participated in. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was a really exciting way to get involved in the process. I think this year we'll see an explosion in the number of ways that citizens can participate, whether it's drawing maps of their own, whether it's providing direct input to the commission on their preferred community boundaries, um, or whether it's using uh, um, uh, software to assess proposals, um, software being pr provided by good government groups like PlanScore that will allow you to take a proposed map literally run it through a software program and learn whether it's competitive, whether the, how compact the districts are, um, you know, and, and all kinds of other measures. And I think these innovations will enable citizen oversight like never before. They will combine to powerfully, um, you know, uh, enhance the transparency pr protections that are now embedded in the constitution. And I, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that like many other states, Virginia's process had been shrouded in secrecy in past cycles. Um, certainly there were public facing elements, but the real decision making has historically happened behind closed doors. Legislators relied on privilege rules to mask the process largely from the public. Um, no more, the constitutional amendment embeds transparency provisions in the text of Virginia's constitution. Uh, the data being used, the proposals being considered and the input the commission receives will all be transparent this time around. And I think that this combined with technological accountability tools will make for a really promising districting round that I think the Virginia public will be proud of. 
Um, it's worth saying that transparency and name only has been a problem in previous rounds. In the 2010 round, Florida had a new constitutional amendment in place for the first time. Florida voters by ballot initiative amended their constitution to prohibit line drawers from taking partisanship into account. And with this provision in place, line drawers did their job and even got high marks for running a transparent process. The problem is that this process uh, produced unfair maps and in subsequent litigation, plaintiffs unearthed that the transparent process taking place in public was in fact a ruse. Uh, partisans had been using stand-ins to introduce maps at public meetings and orchestrated a secretive process sort of behind the scenes. I tell this story not only as a cautionary tale, but to stress that Virginia's amendment took a different path than Florida's. One of the key differences is that unlike Florida, Virginia put transparency requirements directly into the text of the constitution. And I think that sets a very different stage. Also, as I mentioned, I think technology-driven accountability will make the line drawing process far less fun for partisans who would otherwise try to manipulate uh, the lines. And I think the bottom line is um, you know, that we can have high hopes for this process unfolding in a way that's inclusive uh, transparent and produces fair lines. Um, there'll never be consensus, I think, when it comes to map drawing, but I think we're about to see a process that will be a dramatic improvement over what we've seen in the past rounds. Um, that is assuming that we get census numbers, which of course, as you may know, are, are delayed. So I think I'll stop there. Rebecca, thank you very much. So that opens up a topic to which we, I'm sure, will return before our session is concluded this afternoon. So do not go away. <laughs> Hang around, have a cup of coffee if you like, but we, I'm sure we will, these are two of the hottest topics uh, to talk about today. So good start to the panel. Let me turn now to Juliet Clark, who will take us into the realm of education. Juliet? Hi, Professor. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Juliet Busing Clark. I'm a law and policy student at the University of Virginia. I'm in my final year of study. Um, I'm honored to be presenting my research to you. I'd like to thank the organizers of the event, my co-panelists, and especially Professor Howard uh, for letting me join you all today. Updating language on education was one of the main goals of the 1971 Constitutional Revisers, as Professor Howard will tell you. Um, and the revisers were optimistic about opening a new chapter in Virginia public education through their work. Um, so I'm gonna present on that today and I'm gonna actually share a slideshow. Makes Zoom a little more pleasant. Okay. Um, about two years ago, Professor Howard asked me to answer the not at all simple question about this constitutional revision of the education article. Um, how has it worked out? How has education in Virginia changed, grown, improved, or faltered under the 1971 Constitution? Um, today, I'm going to present a pretty brief summary of my answer to this question, um, and I'm happy to take more uh, questions later. To begin this story, there's a few historical events that put the change into context. You all are familiar with the Brown versus Board case, which declared segregation federally unconstitutional, and probably with Virginia's response, known as massive resistance. During this time, Virginia's leaders sought to use creative legal mechanisms to maintain school segregation, which was against federal law. Some of the more harmful of these included shutting down public schools rather than integrate them, using public uh, funds to provide money to 
students to attend private schools, which were segregated, and requiring all local student assignment decisions to go through a pro-segregation pupil placement board at the state level. The effect of these decisions on racial integration is fairly obvious. It essentially prevented any integration, but all of these actions actually had another effect. Massive resistance began to weaken Virginia's public school system as a whole. Uh, this caused concern to more moderate state and economic leaders who saw Virginia's national reputation and economic promise at risk. Massive resistance is popularly thought to have ended around 1960, which is when courts forced Virginia to end the statewide school closing ban. But this doesn't actually mean resistance ended, nor was integration embraced. Uh, in fact, several school districts decided to try their own methods, which brings us to our second important historical event, the Virginia Supreme Court's decision in the Prince Edward County School Board versus Griffin case. When the courts had ordered Virginia's state school clo closing plan uh, to stop, Virginia's Prince Edward County took the unique step on a local level uh, not to allocate any funding for the next five years to its public schools. This prevented their operation and actually closed them down entirely. Instead, the county offered tuition grants to students, but only white students realistically had access to private school options. At the Virginia Supreme Court, the case centered around the constitutional mandate at the time, section 129 of the 1902 constitution that uh, Professor Howard mentioned. This section read, the General Assembly shall establish and maintain an efficient system of free public schools throughout the state. This seems pretty mandatory, but the court decided that the section was actually completely up to the General Assembly's discretion. An efficient system, the court decided, uh, did not require the operation of any schools, in fact, and localities would get to decide the number and character of schools that they wished to operate. Even if that number is zero, the General Assembly had no obligation to ensure otherwise. The court, in other, in other words, rewrote the meaning of Virginia's education article in this section in order to support segregation efforts. In 1964, the US Supreme Court required Prince Edward County to reopen and fund its schools. But the damage of the Griffin decision at the state level was done, and it was now baked into Virginia's precedential understanding of the Constitution. So, in sum, massive resistance had weakened the state's public education system, and the Griffin decision had eviscerated the state constitution's power legally to repair it. When, in 1968, the Constitutional Commission got to work on revision, this historical context would shape a number of the changes that they approached. It's easiest to understand the 1971 changes to the education article as related to two main goals. The first is retrospective, to repair the harms done by massive resistance. This essentially comes down to a two-part change. First, the revisers needed to symbolically reject segregation and reaffirm a commitment to strong public schools. The prior constitution still contained an offensive provision that forbade children of color and white children from being educated together. This had no legal effect after Brown, but it represented the ugliness that the revisers wanted to reject. The revisers additionally added education to the Virginia Bill of Rights, enshrining new aspirational language that reaffirmed the Commonwealth's commitment and prioritization of the public schools. These symbolic rejections of massive resistance were both a statement against segregation and a statement for public schools. In addition to symbolic gestures, 
the revisers wanted to practically create a legal structure in which massive resistance could never happen again. They wanted to make sure no local school district would have the power to shut down its schools again. And that the General Assembly's mandate to operate public schools was strong and legally unambiguous. This involved adjusting the constitutional language to make certain mandates more enforceable. The other goal was prospective. Based on best theories of the time, the new constitution embraced a technocratic ideal of state education governance. That is governance by experts, not by politicians, according to scientific best evidence. This was specifically achieved through the idea of standards and a commitment to high quality. The standards of quality provision was at the cutting edge of education policy at the time and the revisers should be commended for their foresight. While today you all are used to the idea of high expectations and rigorous standards, and the tests that go along with them under No Child Left Behind. Uh, 50 year to, years ago, the idea of creating standards that would measure school quality was just being developed. Um, and the standards of quality were really cause for great excitement in those first few years. Here's a slide that looks at the actual language in the new constitution. Um, I've bolded some of the more important words. So you can see that the first provision is a newly worded mandate for the General Assembly it's unambiguous and untarnished by the Griffin litigation about the old section 129. If you look at that very last provision, it's a self-executing requirement that local governments should pay their fair share. Um, it actually, the attorney general can bring a mandamus suit uh, against them if they don't. Um, in other words, local governments would not be able to close their schools like Prince Edward County had. In the middle, you can see a couple references to high quality um, and standards. This commitment to quality, you should note, uh, is not mandatory. It says, shall seek to ensure. Uh, the revisers had actually recommended shall ensure, but the General Assembly and governor were kind of concerned. There was a lot of litigation starting at the time about school finance, and they wanted to make sure that plaintiffs didn't have uh, extra am ammo to bring up against the state. Uh, they didn't want, uh, they, they were wary of those cases. So uh, it ended up being shall seek to ensure. Uh, the high quality. However, the standards of quality, um, which are created by a board of experts, not politicians, are very much required. Um, and they, they kind of become essential to this new uh, structure of education governance. So the question for us is, did it work? Did the revisers achieve their goals now that we can look back 50 years later? From the retrospective angle, rejecting massive resistance? I think the answer is actually a clear yes. Since 1971, no school district has been shut down in protest of integration. All school districts have received both state and local funding every year. The General Assembly takes seriously its mandate to ensure public schools operate throughout the state. And moreover, de jure segregation is a thing of the past, not just because of federal court orders, but because Virginia law now says so too. Uh, and, and most importantly, the public schools are far more stable than they were in the 1950s. Even with COVID's new challenges, um, you can see every day that Virginia is still committed to its public schools and, and pretty proud of them actually. That said, I think it's really important not to make the mistake of thinking the 1971 constitutional revision was intended to make radical full integration or equality an essential component of Virginia's schools. We're not speaking about de facto segregation or the makeup of, of the demographic composition of schools for a reason. I don't believe it was a goal of the revisers or that it would have been politically possible at the time to pursue actual and complete integration in Virginia schools. Uh, this might seem foreign to modern ears, 
I think though that it's really important to understand the difference in order to understand the legal framework that we have today now, 50 years later. The advisors just weren't very focused on racial equality. Some of them certainly may have supported it personally, uh, but even in the commentaries, race is, is very little mentioned. Removing uh, Virginia's ugly massive resistance reputation is one thing uh, that would strengthen public schools. Pursuing radical racial equality and justice is a, entirely another. Uh, the revisor's goal was more broad and, and education focused. They focused on the school system as a whole. They wanted to make quality schools for all children. It was assumed that by doing so, whatever racial inequality left over from history would simply wither and all children would benefit. The prospective question is a lot more complicated. Did the revisors really create a structure that resulted in high quality schools? As I mentioned, right after the passage of the new constitution, enthusiasm about the standards of quality could not be overstated. The board eagerly sent its standards every other year to the General Assembly, who passed them as uncodified acts. The board took its role as non-political experts very seriously, and the standards were uh, early on a testament to the best ideas about education quality at the time. The Attorney General wrote multiple opinions on the standards, embracing the General Assembly's obligation to apportion funds, quote, equitably between districts and to focus on the quote, actual costs of operating schools. This would ensure that there was enough money to keep schools of high quality. However, this enthusiasm eventually waned. During an economic downturn, the attorney general, general decided that it was actually okay for the governor's slash funds from standards, even if it left an unrealistic mandate behind. The general assembly eventually codified the standards uh, into, into the code itself. Um, and the board, which was an all, all volunteer body and still it is, somewhat abandoned its role in revising them. In, in 2002, JLARC did a review that found that the standards had been barely updated in decades. Today, in fact, the board is required by law to issue recommendations every two years to the General Assembly. This relegates them to an advisory position that probably was not actually intended by the revisers back in 1971. The current board, however, has tried to take on a more active role. Some of these problems in actually getting education out of politics and achieving high quality schools for all children are related to the balance of power left by this constitutional structure. In other states, the primary way to keep a legislature accountable and attentive is by bringing court cases. In about half, state, half of states, school finance litigation has successfully forced the state legislature to rework its funding formula or provide better state aid to needy localities. But Virginia's single school finance case, Scott v. Commonwealth in the early 90s, was unsuccessful for plaintiffs. The court decided that equality in education was simply not required by Virginia's constitution. And true to its relatively deferential style, the court declined to intervene in school budgeting issues. Unfortunately, political will through the General Assembly for better school funding structure has yet to achieve significant change in Virginia. As a result, Virginia's state budget has persistently underfunded schools and understated the standards that are required for actual quality. This leaves localities lucky enough to have the resources to pick up the slack, able to create their own ideas of quality. The unlucky ones, however, are often left behind. I brought some data along to make this a bit clearer. Here are two no notable points, um, and, and these are echoed in a lot of various think tanks. These are just you know, two, two examples. 
Virginia state funding of schools ranks in the bottom 10 states in the nation when considering the proportion of funding that comes from the state versus localities. Um, this means that uh, there's probably a lot of uh, inequality between districts since so much is, is made up for by lo local funds. Our funding fairness score is equally abysmal. Uh, getting a D or F rating means that poor students in Virginia end up with significantly less rather than significantly more, which is what they should have uh, funding for their education. These points don't bode well for Virginia's less advantaged children or for equity in general in our schools. So was the revisor's prospective goal successful? I would say that Virginia's schools on average are extremely high quality, just as the revisors intended. This is buoyed a lot by our affluent areas, areas like Northern Virginia, where students tend to average out on national scores that helps our state end up uh, within like the top five states in the nation. The state accountability structure that's been built on the 1971 constitution has created a framework for quality education that works for children in many communities. But averages do not tell the whole story. The structure does leave the General Assembly relatively unaccountable for its funding choices and Virginia schools have persistently struggled to receive adequate state funding that pro to provide a re realistic quality education for all. This has particularly gotten worse since the Great Recession. Without enough state dollars to equalize resources, Virginia schools are highly unequal, with some districts putting twice the amount of money into a single child's education as others. Thus, despite the revisor's hopes of moving education out of politics and into a board of experts instead of politicians, the General Assembly's continued control of the budget reins has made quality for all on a practical level difficult to achieve. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the revisors hope that a focus on quality for all children would help mitigate racial inequality has, has simply not panned out. We may have symbolically rejected segregation and ended the de jure practices of massive resistance, but the legacy of discrimination, oppression, and exclusion is still very much alive and well. Today, Virginia schools see persistent racial achievement gaps which worsen between kindergarten and third grade, which means that they're probably based on school quality differences. These gaps persist throughout high school and through college achievement. Sadly, Virginia also has seen rapidly increasing de facto segregation, both within districts and between them. Simply put, our children do not learn together. These graphs here show how high poverty, highly segregated schools have been increasing across the state especially in the red communities on this map, nearly doubling in number in the last two decades. This trend has trapped far too many children in unequal classrooms with limited opportunities, and it continues to prevent our children of all races from the benefits of diverse integrated classrooms. These problems of equity, I would argue, were not solved by the 1971 constitutional revision. Rather, issues of socioeconomic equity and racial justice have been left for a new generation to solve. I am hopeful that my generation will be able to do so. Uh, thank you so much for your time and I'll turn it back over to Professor Howard. Juliet, thank you very much. It um, reminds me of the idea that crossed my mind which uh, I knew would never be adopted by the um, committee that organized this program and that was to forget the professors entirely and have nothing but students on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I picked the one model student I thought he could represent her generation of, of law students. And uh, the fact that she came from UVA, I apologize that she came from my school, but uh, 
I've known her for a while, and I know she would do the job she just did. Uh, I have to say that the idea of having students talk about the Constitution, I hope that during the this 50th uh, anniversary, I think there'll be a Teachers Institute out of the Library of Congress, uh, I mean, sorry, the Library of Virginia, and I hope that the sort of emerging generation of Virginians will think about the state constitution. I have to say that when I was in law school, I don't remember my professors talking about the state constitution. It was largely, they were so blinded by the appeal of the federal constitution. And, and, and I think since the future, uh, Jefferson and Madison used to say the earth belongs always to the living generation. So I think that um, if we can get uh, students around Virginia, high school, college, law students and beyond, uh, as part of this general dialogue and discussion, I think will be the better for it. So a little uh, editorial comment uh, as we pass from Juliet's comments on education to size comments on um, executive power. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, it's it's great to be here with uh, the Virginia Bar Association today, and uh, it's hard to follow Juliet. Juliet, uh, you know, really does prove uh, Dick right that the students can really uh, prov you know, pr provide us with informative uh, presentations on matters of constitutional law. And of course, it was delightful to hear Rebecca's presentation as well. I should say my specialty is uh, federal executive power, not uh, state executive power. And I should add that uh, my colleague Dick Howard uh, has forgotten more about the Virginia governor than I'll ever know about the Virginia governor. So it's a little odd to be here today talking to you about uh, the Virginia executive and emergencies because I'm assuming that Dick knows more than I do. But I'm assuming that Dick also wanted to ensure that the different voices were heard. And so I'm here to provide a, a, different, a different voice. Um, so I'm going to start off with a sketch of federal executive power, then switch over to the state executive, because I think it's useful to draw a contrast and, and to see how they influenced each other. And they actually did influence each other, at least early on. Um, and I think there are you know, there's similarities in how people perceive federal and state executive power even today. And so, um, as you know, the Constitution, the federal Constitution um, was a reflection and a in some sense, a repudiation of the state constitutions of that era. The constitution's written in 1787 at the Philadelphia Convention. Uh, the perception on the part of many of the founders is that state legislative power um, was too rampant, too powerful, uh, that there needed to be a check on a state legislative power. Um, there would be many different checks at the federal constitution. There'd be the check of judicial review coming from independent judges. But there'd be a check with respect uh, from, you know, coming from the executive branch as well, right? And they needed to have a strong executive to wield that check. Um, and they looked at the state constitutions and they looked at the state executives and they found them wanting. They found that the state executives weren't, um, weren't designed to be powerful institutions. Uh, as Jefferson put it, when we wrote the state constitutions, we were jealous of executive power um, and we were more trusting of legislative power, but as it turns out, that trust was uh, at least partly misplaced. So when they get to the federal convention, they decide to create this unitary executive armed with a remarkable array of powers, uh, authority over law execution, of course, because that is what makes an executive an executive. They execute the law, but also authority over foreign affairs, checked by the Senate and uh, 
uh, with Congress having significant authority, check over the administrative, sorry, power over the administrative bureaucracy, power to appoint, uh, power to pardon. Um, and all this authority was vested in one person, uh, someone who could run again and someone who could serve for four years. This is in marked contrast to the state executives of the era. So take a look, think of the Virginia Constitution of 1776. The Virginia Constitution had an executive power, but it was vested in an executive council. There was someone called the governor, but he was just sort of first amongst equals. The, the executive council had all the executive authority to be exercised by the council and not by the governor. And what that meant is that the executive was splintered across, you know, several different individuals who had to come together and vote and decide what to do as, as a plural chief executive. Moreover, the, you know, the Virginia executive was term limited and could only serve for a limited number of, uh, you know, a limited period of time, whereas the federal executive was not. The Virginia executive lacked a veto. It lacked all the sort of strength of, uh, of, a, of an executive of the sort that seems more familiar today, right? I mean, every government today has a veto and has at least some appointment authority. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't as true uh, back in 1787. So the, the federal constitution is both learning from the state constitutions and, and deciding to make a departure from them to create an executive able to check uh, the more powerful Congress that resulted from the 1787 constitution. Because as you know, there was a Congress prior to the Constitution was called the Continental Congress, but it didn't have legislative power. They give a bunch of new powers to Congress over taxation, um, over uh, armies, um, over spending, um, over commerce, but they also create this executive check and they also create a judicial check, right, that didn't exist before. This change in conceptions, this new understanding of the need of executive power interestingly enough, actually affects states and what they do going forward. So uh, constitutions that are rewritten in the 1790s actually look more like the federal constitution. That is to say the people who rewrote their constitutions immediately in the wake of, of the federal constitution decide to emulate uh, the federal constitution. So Pennsylvania, which also has a plural executive moves to a unitary executive model. Now, Virginia doesn't do this. Uh, Virginia doesn't revise its constitution uh, until 1820, and it doesn't really establish anything like a unitary executive. It keeps a council of state that um, checks the governor in the exercise of executive power. It's not until 1851 that we have uh, a constitution, at least the executive part of the constitution that looks uh, like the constitution that we have today in the, uh, the modern uh, Virginia constitution. And so uh, you know, as in many things, Virginia sticks to old ways um, far more than perhaps uh, some of the other other states do. But eventually, that that notion that we needed to have a strong executive um, also influenced uh, Virginia as well. So, uh, what about emergency authority under the federal constitution? Did did the president have uh, executive? have emergency authority to spend money to um, jail people, suspend habeas corpus, um, to impose quarantines and the like. And I have written uh, in a paper called The Imbecilic Executive that the answer is no, that the federal constitution did not grant the presidency a host of emergency authorities. And why do I come to that conclusion? Um, well, it's, it's basically an historical analysis of the text. 
And the claim is that the executive power, that phrase by the 18th century did not include emergency authority. And how do I know this? Because we can see this from uh, English practices, but also from American practices prior to 1787. So what is the English practice? Well, um, there were emergencies in England and there were claims of authority to act uh, in emergencies and to act contrary to standing law on the part of the crown and the officers of the crown that parliament fundamentally rejected. So parliament had allowed people to export grains uh, to, over, you know, to, uh, to other countries within Europe. Uh, but there was a famine in England and the crown decided we need to impose an embargo on the exportation of uh, grains because people in, uh, in, you know, in Great Britain are starving. There's sort of a, a policy rationale for, uh, behind this, right? We wanna preserve this grain for us. And so the, the crown barred the exportation of grain contrary to law. And the crown before parliament said, this is totally illegal because the crown has authority in emergencies to act to mitigate those emergencies. And um, the crown, the, the parliament did something interesting. The parliament retro, retroactively blessed or sanctioned what the crown had done but it pointedly denied that the crown had any authority to act contrary to law, that the crown had any authority to act in emergencies contrary to law. Under existing British law, you could export grain. And the parliament said that the crown has no authority to suspend that law, right? And this goes back to the Declaration of Rights uh, in the early part of the 18th century, the, the crown lacks authority to suspend the execution of statutes. And that's true even in the face of an emergency. So the parliament um, almost on the eve of the revolution had denied that the crown had the sort of prerogative power that John Locke had spoken of in his two treatises of government, right? Locke is talking, you know, in the uh, late part of the uh, 17th century. And there's been a lot of changes by the, by the end uh, or the, by the midpoint of uh, the 18th century. But it's not just English practice, it's also American practice. We had an emergency in America in uh, 1776, right? It was called the Re Revolution. And this was a war fought here. It was a domestic war. This was not a war fought overseas, like most of uh, our famous wars, right? There, were, uh, there was active fighting in, the bo in both North and South. And there was a need for emergency action on the part of the executive or more specifically on the part of the government. And what I found in the course of my research is that in every case, whenever there was need for emergency action, the legislature took it. That is to say the legislature granted authority to the executive to spend money without for you know, future appropriations, to jail people without trial, uh, to conduct trials outside of the ordinary civil process, right? To use military tribunals. Um, and this was true both at the federal level and at the state level. Many states authorized state executives authority, state executives to suspend habeas corpus, to expend money, to seize private property for use by the military and to try people in military courts, try ordinary civilians and otherwise in military courts. And these statutes tended to be temporary and they tended to be geographically limited. They tended to be temporary because they didn't want to give the authority indefinitely. 
and they tended to be geographically limited around the area um, where uh, you know Americans had their armies or around where fighting was taking place. And the same thing is true at the federal level. We had a commander in chief called George Washington and Congress uh, regularly granted him authority to suspend habeas corpus, conduct military trials, seize uh, private property upon payment um, and, and do other sorts of things that would be needful in time of an emergency. And so what I, what I basically found is that the states and the, the Continental Congress, the legislatures chose to convey authority and whenever that authority lapped, the governors and the commander, federal commander in chief denied that they had emergency authority. This is relevant because it tells us what it means to be a commander in chief. It doesn't include authority to do this or that or whatever you think is needful in, in an hour of desperation. Uh, but it also tells us uh, about executive power because most, almost all the governors or state executives had grants of quote, executive power. And despite that grant, they didn't perceive themselves as having a, a reservoir of, of undefined uh, emergency authorities. And so I argue that the federal constitution ought to be read the same way. And then I looked at Washington's administration and there were emergencies during the Washington administration as well, right? There, were, <clears throat> there was a rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. And there, uh, how did Washington respond to that? Well, it, it turns out he responded to it by invoking statutory authority, never invoking any constitutional authority. Congress provided that he could call forth the militia to help execute the laws. Uh, it was proving impossible to enforce the excise laws in Western Pennsylvania. So he summoned the militias of Pennsylvania and Virginia to suppress that rebellion. He followed the letter of the law, did not invoke any constitutional authority. Uh, there was another, uh, sort of emergency, there were invasions of American, you know, there was evasion, invasions of American states in the South by Indian tribes. Again, a President Washington looked to Congress uh, for authority to wage those wars. And then finally, and most tellingly, there was a pandemic in early America. There was a yellow fever that struck parts of the country that killed thousands of people. Um, it sort of evokes the modern problems we're having today. And uh, there was a question. Uh, Congress was set to return to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was in the throes of a pandemic. Could Washington summon Congress elsewhere to avoid the specter of members of Congress uh, contracting this deadly uh, fever? And as you know, under the constitution, the president can summon Congress on extraordinary occasions. And the question is, can he summon them elsewhere? And, and Washington received a bunch of advice from uh, his cabinet, but also from Madison and the Speaker of the House, from a number of people. They weren't all um, his uh, departmental associates. And he and they basically concluded that the power to summon Congress early on an extraordinary occasion wasn't a power to summon them elsewhere. None of the opinions he received spoke of the president having a generic emergency power to do what was needful to handle the pandemic, to safeguard Americans, much less safeguard Congress. And so he hit upon a clever expedient. He basically didn't think he had legal authority to do anything. He hit upon the clever expedient of writing to Congress and saying, writing to members and saying, A, there's a pandemic. B, I'm gonna meet in Germantown, Pennsylvania. C, why don't you meet me there? And that was a way of 
telling them about the pandemic, but not ordering them to meet somewhere else. And of course, that's entirely permissible because it's not a legal command. They could have still gone to Philadelphia had they wanted to. Of course, why would they given the pandemic? But my point is that Washington himself did not believe he had some sort of emergency power to do what was needful to protect Americans, much less protect Congress. Now, that's a limited conception of executive power, one that was challenged by Lincoln um, in various ways during the Civil War, and that one that, one that remains contested today. I'm going to leave federal power there and segue to the Virginia Constitution of today. And the Virginia Constitution of today says the president has the chief executive power, and of course says that he has to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, uh, a phrase that mimics the take care clause in the uh, in the um, federal constitution. And, it, and the Virginia constitution is, is somewhat more detailed with respect to executive responsibilities of various sorts, but there is no clause that specifically conveys a host of emergency powers. If the Virginia governor has emergency powers, of course, they come from two sources. One would be uh, the state constitution itself and another would be state statutes. Um, with respect to the question of the state constitution, um, uh, again, I wouldn't read uh, the 19, you know, the, the revisions to the Virginia Constitution as granting emergency authority. I think to really answer that question, you'd have to go back to the era in which it was written and ask the question, does this phrase executive power, whatever it meant 200 years ago, now mean something different, chief executive power, such that it includes executive uh, emergency powers of various sorts, and if so, what would they be? I will say that the uh, Attorney General in, uh, in, during, the, during World War II wrote an opinion, the Virginia Attorney General wrote an opinion saying that the Virginia governor had a general reservoir of power um, to deal with emergencies and that uh, Dick Howard in his book on the Virginia Constitution has cited that uh, Attorney General opinion. Um, suggesting that you know Dick perhaps believes that that's true for the Virginia Constitution. Uh, and then I'll further tell you that uh, our colleague Toby Heitens, who uh, I think is the Solicitor General of Virginia, has cited Dick Howard's book in defending the governor's orders. And so, you know, an attorney general wrote something that Dick Howard then cited that is now being cited by the Solicitor General, uh, all in a bid to defend the idea that the government the governor has a quote reservoir of powers to handle emergencies, which I think is a, you know, a, a way of saying uh, that the executive branch uh, has some residual implied authority to deal with emergencies that that, you know, that may not be expressed. Having said that, there is an opinion of the uh, Virginia Attorney General uh, from several years ago saying, while it may be true that the governor has a reservoir of powers. What the governor can't do is, is spend money without an appropriation. And so if, if the Virginia legislature fails to pass you know, annual appropriations, the Virginia governor just can't spend money on grounds that there's an emergency. So there, on the one hand, the attorney general says there's a reservoir of powers uh, to deal with an emergency. On the other hand, the Virginia attorney general says, but it doesn't extend so far as to permit the governor to expend funds without an appropriation. So whether the constitution grants uh, emergency powers, I think is, is contested in various ways. 
Um, we don't know what the answer is, uh, in part because we don't know what the courts um, have said about this. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, Virginia governors ha have the benefit of statutory grants of authority as well. And as many of you are aware, uh, the Virginia legislature has granted tremendous authorities to the Virginia governor to deal uh, with emergencies of various sorts. Uh, the governor can declare a state of emergency and spend money in various ways, but he can also, um, in cases of an emergency, uh, issue quarantines and other sorts of orders. And using that authority, uh, Governor Northam has imposed uh, various rules to handle the COVID-19 outbreak. And he's issued about, I think, 15 or more uh, executive orders uh, in the past you know, nine or 10 months. I'm sure he will issue others as well. And as you also know, they, they regulate uh, what we can do in public. They regulate what businesses can do. They regulate what we can do in private, namely gatherings of various sorts and the number of people that can be in those gatherings. And um, having read most of them, but not all of them, uh, the governor seems to be relying upon his statutory authority and not any constitutional authority. And I think he's doing that because he believes or his lawyers believe that the statutes of Virginia convey sufficient authority to him that he doesn't need to rely upon any uh, claims or nebulous claims of constitutional authority. The, the statutes do the trick and so you might as well rely upon them. And um, you know the reason why there have been 15 is because uh, these orders um, typically have a temporary nature to them. They last for 30 or 60 or 90 days. And I think they last that long because we've all hoped that uh, the need for them would expire after some period of time. And so the, the governor has put you know, uh, time limits on them and then um, felt the need to modify them or uh, extend them in various ways. And that's why there's been you know, 15 of them or so. And there, were, there will surely be more as this um, pandemic, in full, uh, pandemic uh, ensues and continues. It shows no signs of abating, unfortunately. Um, now, the Virginia legislature has not been sitting on its hands. It's actually amended the emergency statute in, a, in sort of minor ways. Um, what it hasn't done, I think, is actually um, sanctioned uh, the precise measures or codified the precise measures that the governor has um, taken pursuant to his statutory authority. It probably hasn't done that because it either thinks that the governor um, has properly exercised its authority. It may not want to take responsibility for what the governor has done. And then finally, it may not wish to codify um, in some sort of semi-permanent way these rules, given that it's a fast-changing situation where you don't want to have a permanent set of rules. Having said that, if you look at the uh, uh, Emergency Act, the Virginia legislature has created slightly different sets of rules for different periods of time. So one set of rules expires at the end of March, another set of rules takes over from that point on and lasts for two years. And then a third set um, continues on from 2023. So they've shown some nimbleness um, and some willingness to create different emergency, slightly different emergency regimes, you know, and done so prospectively, which, which is interesting. Um, but they haven't done anything, to my mind, as far as I can tell, 
that sanctions particular actions uh, of the governor. And again, I think that's because they're trying to give leave the flexibility with the governor, but probably also trying to avoid, um, you know, possible um, uh, unhappiness with the regime that the governor uh, has imposed. And of course, it's also possible, I don't know the politics within the legislature, it's also possible that maybe uh, some of these gubernatorial um, uh, initiatives, these executive orders wouldn't pass through the legislature, in which case um, there wouldn't be a majority to enact them, nor would there be a majority to repeal them in both chambers. And so we're sort of stuck with um, whatever the governor has done without any prospect of uh, significant modification or, or uh, uh, legislative imprimatur. Um, as you also know, there have been lots of challenges in the state courts. And um, from what I can tell from the Cracker Jack assistance of, of our librarians, our, our incredible librarians here at the University of Virginia, um, it looks like the government has won every single one of these challenges. Um, the attorney general has successfully defended the governor each time. Uh, and the government has prevailed under a number of theories. Sometimes the courts don't get to the merits. They deny that uh, anyone has standing to challenge uh, the governor's executive orders or that the particular people coming to court have standing. And other times they get to the merits and then rule that uh, the governor acted legally um, because he used statutory authority properly. Will there be a successful challenge? I don't know, your guess is as good as mine. Um, one supposes that as these, you know, as these um, challenges continue and as the restrictions continue, maybe whatever deference the courts are giving to the executive branch in the face of a truly uh, unprecedented modern times public calamity might, that, that that deference might wither or diminish over time. Of course, uh, the extent of the deference that the courts are according to the executive branch is in part a function of the claims that are being brought. And as we've seen elsewhere, if you are able to tie your rights claim to the federal constitution, say the free exercise clause or some other part of the federal constitution or state constitution for that matter, um, you might have greater success, right? It's one thing to say um, you're acting ultra virus because you don't have statutory authority. It's another thing to say that you're violating my right to assembly or petition the government or uh, free exercise of religion. And of course the Supreme Court itself um, has um, you know, shown some willingness to strike down state restrictions on the grounds that it uh, violates the free exercise clause of the federal constitution. And so that may well uh, be the case or that may well happen yet in uh, in Virginia. So, um, you know, I think I'll end with this, with this sort of thought about broad delegations in times of emergencies. There is a move at the federal level to rein in delegations um, to the federal executive and to the administrative bureaucracy. There's an interest in reviving the non-delegation doctrine on the part of some of the justices, the more conservative justices, because they believe that the federal constitution doesn't permit Congress to just delegate its legislative powers elsewhere. And of course, the Virginia constitution says that the executive can't exercise um, legislative and, and judicial power. So the, the Virginia constitution makes uh, express what some think is implicit in the federal constitution. Um, 
But having said all that, I, I think there is a long tradition of delegating sweeping authority to the executive in times of crisis. This dates back to the Roman era where um, Rome would delegate authority to dictators um, in order to uh, thwart invaders. And these dictators weren't viewed um, as tyrants. They were viewed as virtuous citizens in part because they would use their authority and then voluntarily give it up. That's, uh, that's uh, the legend of Cincinnatus. Uh, Washington was called Cincinnatus because he had control of the army and he voluntarily gave it up. And so there was this tradition of, of dictatorship that was viewed as benign, that was gonna last as long as the emergency lasted and then uh, uh, go, back to, you know, go back to the status quo ante. And that was true in, the, in, in America as well. Several governors or several executives were viewed as dictators during the revolution uh, because it was thought necessary to give them extraordinary powers. This was said of the Virginia governor, it was also said of the South Carolina governor, it was even said of Washington, given that he could hold people indefinitely and given that he could conduct military trials of civilians where Congress had provided that authority. And I think that same sort of thing is playing out uh, in the courts today. That is to say the courts, if there's ever gonna be a revision of the non-delegation doctrine, it's not gonna happen with respect to pandemic legislation or emergency legislation that deals um, with true emergencies because the courts are gonna be reluctant to second guess what the executive is doing. So with that, um, I will um, welcome any questions you might have. And, and once again, I wanna express my uh, profound appreciation for being part of this uh, wonderful day of VBA Talks. Thank you, Sai. That's a wonderful walk through English, American, and Virginia history all in a few minutes. It's almost like being in your classroom. So maybe I should qualify my notion that we should have had an all-student panel, because if I had done that, you wouldn't have been here. And we'd have been the, the poorer for it. Um, we have a few questions coming in. I'll remind the audience that if they do have questions they'd like to put them to any of us, um, there is a Q&A feature. Uh, I have several questions. And what I'll do is I'll take those questions first. I mean, I, I have questions I'd like to put to the panel, but um, let me take some of the questions that have come in from members of the virtual audience today from around the Commonwealth. and. Uh, First, let me, I'll, I'll sort of rearrange them a little bit and I'll start with questions to Rebecca, if I may. And here's a historical question from Stephen Price. And it's the, he asked the following question. He says, under English common law, didn't convicted felons lose their right to vote? Rebecca? Um. Yeah, so the answer is uh, yes, that's, that is true. And, you know, there is a, other countries, um, you know, historically have um, used this practice. And in fact, that's probably a big reason why it's included or assumed in the 14th Amendment, you know, in the explicit text of the 14th Amendment. Um, but I'm not sure that that history provides a rationale here, uh, especially given that, you know, only white men, as Professor Howard mentioned at the outset, you know, it could historically vote in American history. So, you know, I think the expansion of the franchise over the course of, you know, U.S. history um, could be seen to include um, decisions that that uh, states make about who to accept into their political community. So I guess I would just answer it that way. 
Rebecca, if I can stay with you for a moment, I have a question from uh, Robert Scully. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to read off the question. He, where, this shifts from the question of felons voting to the question of redistricting. Yeah. And he says the following. Can you talk about the impact, if any, of the delay in the president transmitting the census report to the Congress on the timeline of the new Virginia Redistricting Commission drawing districts ahead of the 2022 midterm election? And he goes on to say, also, will the commission redraw its House and Senate district, district boundaries using the same census data and on the same schedule? Yeah, um, so this is a great question and there's been a lot of hand-wringing um, about this. People are concerned because of course there is a census delay um, due not only to the pandemic but also to some litigation involving um, who to count. Uh, and um, I think, so, so the latest, so this was discussed actually at the commission's first meeting last night. Um, and the thinking is that, um, you know, well, first of all, Virginia is one of two states uh, in the country that has off-year elections. Um, New Jersey and, and Virginia are the two. And so there's been historical practice of the US Census kind of hurrying up to get those two states, their census data early to accommodate their off-year elections. So we do assume that even um, in, in the federal government knows um, that, you know, we need our, we need our numbers quickly. Um, and so there's sort of like a, a, a sense of when would be sort of the drop dead date uh, to receive um, the census numbers uh, in order to you know, run those elections uh, in the fall. Um, and so it's not clear whether, whether the, the uh, numbers will come out. But one of the things that people discussed last night um, at the commission's meeting was that there is quite a bit of work that can get done um, even absent the official numbers. There are, um, there are numbers that can be used that while not official will allow the commission to kind of get underway um, although it won't be able to obviously finalize until those numbers um, are released. So it remains to be seen. You know, I've heard, um, I've heard, you know, late May, I've heard someone threw out March at one point, and then um, I think I was a little bit alarmed when someone mentioned something about August. So if, if you know, if it is delayed that far, um, there's going to have to be some kind of legislative response, uh, because obviously, um, it, you know, that would not be in time to, to run the elections. Um, on your second question, I, th I think the question was, do, does the House, um, do, do the, does the House and Senate uh, use the same numbers and, and run on the same timeline? And my understanding is that uh, the answer there is yes, that the, once the, I think the timeline starts tolling for both when the census figures are released, I think it's a 45 day window um, to draw maps um, using that data. Um, so that's my understanding of how, of how the, the statutory requirement unfolds. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, Sai, let me turn to you with a, it's a, a pair of questions, and I'll read them one after the other to you from uh, Clyde Christopherson. And the first question he asks is it as follows. Might it be practical for the executive to exceed what was lawful but reasonable under the circumstances? For example, the British Crown and Pargo were drained during a famine and then expressly seek ratification. So that's, he poses that question. Then he subsequently goes on in, a, in, a, in another transmission here to say the following. Might such a strategy more, be more palatable if coupled with a strategy implemented jointly by the executive and Congress 
of restoring the policy authority of the legislature that has been eroded for practical reasons over the years. So that's that's the question from Mr. Christopherson. Well, I think uh, Mr. Christopherson has just you know hit the nail on the head, and it's very he's got a very Jeffersonian approach. This was exactly Jefferson's view um, of what an executive should do in time of an emergency. The executive ought to, of course, look to see if the constitution or statutes authorize the action. But if, if the executive concluded that there was no authority, the executive ought to act illegally and then explain himself to the legislature and ask for an indemnification of the act rather than claiming that they, the constitution or, you know, always authorized whatever needed to be done in time of emergency. And there are many examples of um, both Congress, certainly Congress, and also the Virginia legislature indemnifying the executive. So in, in that article I mentioned earlier, the imbecilic executive, I have a footnote where I describe Virginia's legislature during the Revolutionary War passing a bill um, that retroactively sanctioned what the Virginia executive had done. And um, there are many private bills passed by Congress that, uh, in, you know, after the constitution that basically say this executive did this or that and it was, you know, wrong in various ways or not authorized, but we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to sanction it, right? And of course, this is precisely what happened at, in, in the Civil War. Um, Lincoln took a bunch of emergency actions and he says, I didn't do anything that Congress couldn't do, which I think was an artful way of admitting that he did things that he, he didn't have legal authority to do, but that Congress did have legal authority to do. And then he went on to say, uh, maybe Congress ought to enact legislation. And that's precisely what they did. They enacted legislation in the early days of the Civil War that retroactively sanctioned uh, some of Lincoln's uh, emergency measures. And so uh, Mr. Christofferson is, is exactly right. The, the regime, uh, I think, of the founding was the president and uh, governors have certain limited emergency authorities from the constitution and, and statutes, and they can use those things. If they don't have authority to do a certain thing, they sometimes will have to do it anyway. And then they'll have to go to the legislature and beg forgiveness. And then, the, you know, they're basically putting themselves at risk, but he says, that's what a, you know, a, a good executive ought to do. And if they're right that they, you know, that there was an emergency, of course the legislature will sanction what they did. Um, and that's of course what parliament did in the wake of this famine in England, right? They, they said, you don't have authority to do what you did. Don't pretend that you do, but we're gonna sanction it anyway. Um, Clyde's, uh, Mr. Christofferson's second question, I think is reflective of a concern that legislatures have um, kind of delegated authority uh, too often to the executive. And I, you know, that's a, that's a sense that's widely held uh, in some quarters in America and it's held with respect to Congress, but perhaps it's also held with respect to, you know, the, um, you know, the state legislatures throughout the country. And I, I can't speak to, you know, how other states deal with delegations. Um, what, I, well, what I can say is, you know, there's, there's a way to deal with these, de, you know, extraordinary delegations. And the way to deal with them is to say, you know, the, the, the governor can take extraordinary measures that last 
for 60 days after the next session of the legislature, right? And what that means is, you know, if the legislature is meeting in two weeks, then the governor's measures last for two weeks plus two months. If the legislature is meeting in six months, they last for six months plus two months, eight months. But the, the point is there's a, there's a deadline to them and the, the legislature has to, to weigh in rather than just giving a blank check to the executive to you know, handle this pandemic. So, I mean, the governor could be, you know, I'm not, I don't, not weighing in on the policy rationale of this, but if this pandemic lasts for five years, the government, the governor could rule by decree for five years with respect to um, what we can or can't do. And you might think maybe that's a good idea, but maybe the legislature ought to be sanctioning this rather than just passing a, a rule, a statute that delegates power to the executive to impose an indefinite state of emergency when the legislature is fully capable of responding to the crisis, right? This isn't a situation where the legislature can't meet because there's an invasion or the legislature can't meet because they're all dead from a pandemic. They're meeting, they're doing things, yet we're still, um, you know, being, uh, you know, subject to these decrees without any, you might think, I'm not, I'm not saying this, but you might think without any meaningful legislative review or certainly not any meaningful legislative um, blessing or sanctioning of these orders, right? Because they, they're trying to avoid responsibility. That's true of Congress and maybe it's true, maybe it's true of our, of our esteemed legislatures. But thank you for that wonderful question, Mr. Christofferson. Thank you, Cy. Uh, let, let me take the uh, chair's prerogative to pitch a question to, um, to Juliet. I mean, once she graduates, then she's free of, I can't ask her any questions, I please, but up to this point, I can. <laughs> so I'll take that progress. Um, and I'm curious to know uh, the following sort of uh, scenario. We've, we're in the course of a pandemic, which drastically affected American life in so many respects, but above all, in the schools. I mean, schools have had to navigate um, this virtual learning space, uh, public officials have had to come to terms with uh, the functions that schools play in society and they go beyond simply the transmission of knowledge in the classroom. There are things like school lunches and uh, the so socialization of students to deal with each other and, and the world beyond. I mean, there are so many ways in which uh, some of these functions are simply lost when schools are closed. And I'm wondering if, especially as this pandemic stretches out, uh, might it be that the pandemic will bring us to do some rethinking about um, how schooling is done? And uh, what, what, what do you think? What might we see, uh, including any implications there might be for constitutional revision? Juliet, would you take a shot at that? Yeah, this is a really interesting question that a lot of people are talking about right now in Virginia as well as across um, the country. Um, on the one hand, you know, COVID and has been shown and will continue to uh, sort of exacerbate these problems of equity that I highlighted in the presentation. We're seeing huge um, racial and socioeconomic uh, learning loss gaps. Um, the pandemic is bad for all kids, but uh, but it's it's really hurting um, the the more disadvantaged kids, um, specifically at more disadvantaged schools. Um, we're seeing a huge variety in, in what schools are providing. Um, 
I know that uh, Virginia's uh, state leaders actually have taken some steps to sort of think about how virtual learning might be a part of schooling in the future um, by sort of creating new standards that are related to it uh, by setting up the infrastructure for internet. So that's that's one side of things, but I think that's kind of the more obvious side. Uh, I think the more, the more interesting question is if the pandemic's going to create um, sort of a political will around rethinking schooling in general. So what we're gonna see is kids that are sitting in the same classroom, same age, but are performing at vastly different grade levels, which is something teachers have always dealt with, but most of the public kind of ignores. Um, and so now it's gonna be pretty obvious. We're gonna have kids at all different levels in the classroom. So this might change how we wanna think about assessment. Do we want to be looking at assessment outside of grade level and thinking about how kids are growing? Do we wanna be looking at a curriculum that really focus on um, basically teaching content uh, deeply, but, but maybe at, at multiple different levels, um, which is, is kind of, it's based on the inclusion model of instruction. So this might reshape what we actually see in classrooms because it will become a lot more socially acceptable and normal to, to know that kids are at different levels in the same classroom. Um, I also think we're probably gonna see differences in uh, talking about year round schooling and talking about when we are in school. Um, it seems like the pandemic is going to uh, wrap up right before summer break. And I think a lot of districts and even the state is talking about what are we gonna do this summer? I think that could start a longer question about like, should we really have this sort of old fashioned agricultural model of a really long summer summer break? It causes learning loss, it causes equity gaps, all these things. And it's, it's kind of complicated for working parents, uh, which brings me to the, the last point, which is I think schools uh, closing has really highlighted for a very powerful political block. We're talking about like suburban parents, like this is really hard not having childcare for my kids during the day and sort of admitting that, yeah, schooling does provide this childcare function. Uh, we've seen a lot of preschools actually end up staying open during the pandemic because it's so essential to have that for working families. Uh, when public schools are closed, you know, these parents are struggling, even parents that are of a very good means uh, are really struggling to to kind of balance having kids at home and, and having jobs that they need to to work. So I think we're going to see a lot of questions about you know what a school is and a school is kind of this community hub. It's a place for childcare and the fact that schools get out at you know two every day is sort of a, it speaks to this old idea that there's always a mom home who can pick them up in the middle of the day, but that's just not true anymore. You know, most families have working parents. So I think what we're gonna start to see is this question of should school really be an all day thing maybe? Should there be after school programs universally? Should we have universal pre-K and these, these questions? And I do think some of these have constitutional implications. You know, I've talked a lot about racial equity, which is more of like a problem that persists from the past, but I think we're gonna face new problems as well coming up. Um, I think pre-K is kind of the, the big frontier here. Um, we're already seeing some states adjust their constitutions to change the age downward that, that public education is provided um, or that you know the state education structure accounts for. So I think we'll probably see um, additional, additional movement in that area of, of what are we gonna provide for kids from zero to five for that brain development, for family stability, for helping with childcare. Um, how is the state really gonna support that? Because it has huge investment implications down the road. Um, and I think the pandemic just highlights how important that is. So those are some ideas. <laughs> I'm sure that people, uh, people are coming up with many more still. Thanks, Professor. Thank you, Juliet. Um, 
Rebecca Green, may I circle back to you with a question about um, restoring the voting rights of felons? Uh, I've been intrigued by the, that problem for a long time. It's a pressing problem, and I think it probably matters. I mean, I, you were quite right in tracing the uh, origin of the ban on voting by felons back to the early 19th century. It precedes the age of the 1902 Constitution, so it does, in effect, bifurcate the question of what do you think of restoring the voting rights of felons in general and the question, but do, do, does, it, does this enfranchisement fall, even if it wasn't originally intended to fall, on blacks as such? Does it fall more heavily on persons of color or other or other minorities? Um, Governor Northam, in his State of the Commonwealth address, has proposed uh, automatic uh, reenfranchisement when uh, for former felons. And uh, assuming that proposition carries forward, I'm, I'm guessing that you've been asked to sort of be involved in the process of drafting a constitutional amendment. I'm wondering, how do you go about, what do you put in an amendment like that? I want to sort of a couple of questions occur to me. One, what can we learn from other states who have moved in this direction? And in particular, what can we learn from what happened in Florida, where the people of Florida overwhelmingly voted to amend the Florida constitution to re-enfranchise former felons, but the Florida legislature basically gutted that by in piling all, all sorts of provisions, which are basically unachievable. So what the people asked for, the legislature essentially has come back to. The drafting process may not be easy, and if anybody can deal with it, you can. So I'm just curious to know what, what you might tell us about drafting something. You know, I haven't been asked to help um, draft uh, this amendment, but I would love to be part of the process. And I do think that you're right to point to Florida as a real cautionary tale about, um, you know, putting something through that has huge public support and yet not um, doing a careful drafting job and finding uh, that that's undercut. And so for people who aren't familiar with that situation, Florida voters passed by um, a very wide margin, um, an amendment to the Florida constitution that did away with their um, felon, disenfranch felon disenfranchisement law. Um, but the, the legislature subsequently um, decided in interpreting the language of that amendment that um, it didn't kick in until Floridians um, had finished paying their fines and fees. Um, which, you know, one could argue is this maybe a straightforward requirement, but the problem is one of record keeping because it turns out that um, Florida records are just not up to the task of helping people easily figure out how much they owe. So there are plenty of people who were terrified of registering to vote thinking that they thought that they had paid off their fines and fees, but they weren't able to confirm that because of the poor record keeping system in the 67 counties in Virginia. So it just turned into a huge mess where you had um, you know, thousands of people disenfranchised um, because either they couldn't confirm that they'd paid their fines and fees, they couldn't afford to pay their fines or fees, or they were just frightened um, you know, with, without, uh, without surety about whether or not they would be in trouble for registering. So, um, so I do think that that um, suggests that a much more careful job should be done in Virginia as we approach this question of exactly what the words should be of the constitutional amendment. And um, I think looking to other constitutions um, um, is one place to start. But of course, um, you know, I, I think part of the issue is that um, in 
you know, other states lack this provision to begin with. So, so it, it, you know, it, it may not be as easy as just sort of looking at, at other states. It may, it, may, it may take some original drafting, but I do think um, we're, we're a step ahead of the game in terms of knowing how badly it can turn out by looking to Florida. So it's, a, it's gonna be important to be, to be careful in terms of how it's drafted. Rebecca, thank you very much. Uh, Sean, let me come back to you for a moment and run a scenario by you. Um, and it's a question of state constitutional interpretation, but uh, I, you're clearly nimble if you, you were modest in saying that you didn't know that much about the governor of Virginia and his powers, but uh, that is excessively modest. At any rate, let, let, let me, you, you mentioned the question of the governor's power to spend when there's no budget. Uh, that's a question of what can the executive do when there's no legislative authority. And the question I'm going to run by you actually goes a step beyond that because there's a, in the first place, a general question which you've been addressing, I thought, very thoughtfully of is there any reservoir of executive power when, our, when Article 5 of the Virginia Constitution says that the executive power shall be vested in the governor? What is it that's vested? Is there something residual there that doesn't require legislative uh, approval or the like? Can he act, specifically can he act in emergencies? Well, the, the incident you referred to, the question, ongoing question you referred to, has an additional dimension to it. And that is, if, if someone argues that the governor may spend state money after July the 1st, let's assume no budget has been agreed to, and we have on a couple of occasions come very dangerously close to that, where it looked like a budget might not be in place. So the question is not purely academic. I think it's it's indeed very, very practical. And the additional dimension of it, <laughs> it a, a real test case, is that the Constitution of Virginia says in no certain terms that no money shall be spent save in pursuance of appropriation. It's, it's, it's black, it's clear language is saying you don't have a legislative appropriation, you can't spend the money. Well, that if, if you are a textualist and you say that's all we need to know, then that's the end of the matter, the government can't spend. And the question has been that I've not been asked to, to consider over the years, going back really back to Governor Warner's administration in some sense that time, is well what happens when July the first comes? And you look at this provision of the Constitution says you can't spend money unless there's a legislative appropriation and there's not a budget. So it's July the 2nd, July the 1st, and do you close down the state hospitals? Do you close down the state police? Do you close down the state ports? Do you, I mean, do you open the state prisons? I mean, there's real mm -hmm. genuine critical problems there. So my thoughts, are, I mean, I had no answer to this because there's no court cases. Uh, we just don't know the answer to that. As a, as a citizen, I hope we never discover the answer. I don't want to know. As a citizen of Virginia, I do not want to find out what the answer to that is. As an academic, obviously, I'm curious to know what would be the answer to it if the time came. And it seems to me that a governor might, whatever a court might say, the governor is not going to let, I mean, money keeps coming in. The revenues are still there. The state money is available. And it seems to me the governor is bound, he might decide to close down discretionary things. The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, for example, might be closed, but he, he's not going to send home the state troopers or close the hospitals or the like. 
you know that in the wor real world, the governor will spend money. Uh, is there sort of a rail pull the teeth sort of a thing that we know will happen no matter what the Constitution says? Or are there constitutional limitations which are going to apply in a case like that? So I'm just curious to know how, if, if a governor were to ask you, what do I do? That's a great question, Dick. And um, I think, you know, there's a legal answer and there's a practical answer, um, but there's also a federal answer. So let me give to the federal answer first. This actually happens all the time at the federal level where Congress fails to pass, you know, an appropriation um, and the, the prior year's appropriations have expired. So there's no authority to go to the treasury and withdraw funds. But of course, the government has all these programs um, that rely upon funds. Uh, sometimes Congress actually passes a permanent appropriation that allows funding to continue. That's true for lots of entitlements, but it doesn't have permanent appropriations for the army and for you know most of the federal budget. Well, Large portions of the federal budget are done through annual appropriations and not permanent appropriations. And so this question has come up multiple times at the federal level. And the lawyers, the executive branch lawyers, claim that the president has legal authority um, to spend money to shut down things, which kind of makes sense. That, like You don't just literally leave you know, the door open because you don't have money to pay someone to lock the door. Um, but they also claim to have authority to spend money on anything that's needed to protect the lives of Americans, um, which I think includes things like the military and things like the air traffic controllers and stuff. And so the way to think about it is they're basically saying the president can spend money on anything that's necessary to protect the, you know, the lives of Americans and to protect federal property but nothing beyond that. And so there are limits to what, to the principle they're enunciating. Um, I actually think that they're wrong in saying that because I think the federal, the federal constitution has the same provision that the Virginia constitution does with respect to saying that you can't withdraw money from the treasury unless there's an appropriation made by law and everyone understands that to mean Congress because the president can't make law. But I think the, you know, the, the executive branch has hit upon an expedient of saying, well, certain things have to be funded, will be funded, and the executive will go to the treasury and withdraw funds without regard to an appropriation. And I, I think there's two ways of handling that reality, right? The one way is to claim that there is legal authority, which I disagree with. And the other way is to say, look, there is no legal authority, but I'm going to continue doing this. And it, I'm doing something illegal and hopefully you'll see the wisdom of what I'm doing and you'll retroactively sanction what I'm doing. Now, in most of these cases, there's never gonna be a court case because no one has standing, right? It, tomorrow, Joe Biden can send a check to you or me and no one will have standing to challenge it because they're not harmed in a particular way by the fact that you or I got a check from Joe Biden. Um, and that's true with respect to appropriation. That is to say, for the most part, individuals won't have standing just because the governor is spending money where there's no appropriation or the president is spending money with no appropriation. So there's not going to be a court case. So, you know, I think the governor or the president can spend money as a practical matter because they control the treasury. Um, I think it's illegal. 
I think they should do that where they think it's necessary. And then I think they should do what, you know, Mr. Christofferson said earlier, which is to, to basically say publicly, I didn't, and I took this measure because I thought it was absolutely necessary. Um, I don't claim that it's legal. In fact, it's illegal. I don't want to foster a tradition or practice of spending money without an appropriation. And uh, it's up to the legislature now to sanction what I did or to, to impeach me, right, for doing this, to take, for taking these measures. It's up to them. And, you know, it's possible that there'll be some sort of un, uncertainty about what the legislature is doing, you know, uh, is not, you know, is not, is, you know, because they're not going to want to take responsibility for, you know, sometimes for either sanctioning what the governor did or refusing to sanction it. Um, but I, I think, you know, you've hit upon, you hit your nail upon a real world problem that if Virginia hasn't faced, the federal government faces every two or three years. This has just happened repeatedly, um, you know, for decades where Congress is unable to reach agreement on an appropriation. Typically, they pass something called a continuing resolution that funds the government at previous levels. But sometimes they're not able to do that. And that's when these, you know, these Office of Legal Counsel opinions kick in where the, where the, the president on the advice of lawyers says, I can fund things that are necessary to protect the you know, the lives of Americans and, and to, you know, protect the national defense, which means that some things get funded and some things don't. I thank you. We're coming close to the conclusion of our discussion. We had one other question that was a general question put to me by David Shufflebarger, and he asked, looking back, are there, do you have any regrets about what else might have been addressed in the 1970 Constitution? If so, what ought to be a priority for the next version? Uh, well, of course, with the passage of time, you can say absolutely there aren't. There were some regrets at the time, but there are even more regrets now. Take one quick example: the uh, commission added to the 1971 Constitution the requirement that legislative districts be compact and contiguous. Now, that's not a self-defining phrase; it requires some interpretation, but it's meant to be a mandate to the legislature. The Virginia Supreme Court in several cases over the years has been, in my judgment, uh, unduly uh, deferential to the legislature. They, I think they see what Felix Frankfurter once called a political thicket. They just don't want to really get involved in telling the legislature what to do in drawing district lines. So that's why the pending the, the new commission that Rebecca described is, uh, is important. So it's issues like that. I think similarly with felons, it seems to me that the governor had the authority to issue uh, wholesale uh, pardons. I'm not sorry, not just restoration of, of voting rights as opposed to individuals one at a time. There is a number of cases where once the Constitution is in place and the courts interpret it, whatever the framers thought they were doing, whatever a law professor like me thinks it ought to mean. The judges still have the final words. We have to look carefully to those uh, various decisions in time and seeing what's on the table. I return to my original theme that in looking at the present Constitution, we ought to be above all emphasizing those things which help nurture racial justice, economic justice, political inclusiveness, a fair commonwealth. I mean, the things we care about can be enshrined in one way or another in the state constitution. They don't finally provide answers. 
So I think have to leave it there at that point with um, passage of time. Allison, do you want to pick it up at this point? And maybe I thank the panel for wonderful remarks. I'm just excited to have had all of you on. I thank you for your time and your insights. They've been wonderful. Allison, back to you. Thank you so much. Indeed, I want to thank you, Professor Howard, Professor Green, Professor Prakash, and Juliet as well for your sharing your expertise on these important issues of Virginia constitutional law, which we as Virginia lawyers need to consider further. So this really got us thinking about um, a lot of these issues on these important topics. And we thank you for being here this afternoon. I wanna give an extra shout out to Juliet. We are delighted to see that you will be staying in Virginia and we wish you well in your clerkship. And as you embark on your career with McGuire Woods and we really hope that you will stay in close touch with the Virginia Bar Association and become a member if you're not already and do great things for us. There was talk at one point in time about establishing an education law section and you just might be the person to do that. So, um, so we, uh, we do wish you well and as I said, delighted that you will be in, in Virginia. With that, um, we'll conclude this program. We have a scheduled break right now and we will resume in 15 minutes um, with our ethics program that's scheduled to begin at 345. So again, thank you to Professor Howard and our other panelists. Have a, uh, have a great afternoon and I'll see um, most of you in just a few minutes uh, as we begin our ethics program. Thank you. <laughs>